Okay, y'all, this morning, this is an exciting morning. This is an exciting moment. This is where we're going to tackle actually the last story of Genesis. Do you remember when we started Genesis? It seems like so long ago. We started going really, really slowly, and then we kind of picked up speed toward the end of the book because toward the end of the book, uh, the writers start spending more and more time on individual stories. And so to, in order to give you guys the forest, we've done one sermon per major story, and that brings us now to the last major story of the book. And actually, next week, we're going to continue the story because the story continues pretty seamlessly into Exodus. So we're going to follow this family into Exodus to find out what happens in part two. But what's so exciting about today is that we we're going to get to see Genesis as a book because this final story serves as a capstone, serves as a bookend, reminds us, remember the first sermon, what's the genre of the story in which we are living? That is what Genesis is all about. What is the genre of the story in which we are living? What is the nature of the characters? What is the nature of the conflict? And what is God fundamentally trying to do? And if you were here for this first sermon, you remember the answer to that question is that God, the creator, the gardener, the artist, is about the work of making good things. He takes the chaos, the nothingness of pre-creation, and he makes things and he calls them good. And the creation of good things out of nothingness, out of chaos, is the first glimpse we got into the nature of the creator and sets the tone for the story that's to come. And what we're going to see in this last story is how God continues that work in a setting that looks a lot more like we see him today. So just brief recap where we've been. Again, all of these are on the internet. They're all, the videos are on YouTube. The audio is on our podcast. So if you want to go catch up, you are welcome to do that. We started in Genesis with God created the world to be home, to be his dwelling place, to be good. Humans messed that up in Genesis 3. And humans messed it up in a way that actually got down to like the very DNA of who we are, messed us up from the inside out, messed, broke the very nature of creation so that instead of being fundamentally good, we were fundamentally good and also broken. We were fundamentally good and also living in an area, in a creation with a broken relationship between human and God, human and human and human and creation, and those relationships broke more and more and more and snowballed more and more and more. And so we had the story of the flood, which was God's giant um, inter, uh, giant trying to clean up the, the chaos and the massive blood, thirsty violence that was covering the face of the earth. Then we had the story of the Tower of Babel, which was God trying to set limits on humans' capacity for evil. And then we had the story after Babel of God's chosen covenant bearer because from then we see God pivot and his new plan is I'm going to focus on one person and through that one person there's going to be a family through that family there's going to be a tribe through that tribe there's going to be a nation through that nation all the peoples of the earth will be blessed so God in his new plan of action to fix the problem zeroes in on his covenant person who is Abraham and that what we've watched in the last three sermons especially, is the covenant past Abraham to Isaac, Isaac to Jacob. And today we are on the last major story of Genesis where the covenant is passing on from Jacob, but this is where we're going to see that God takes a turn 
because instead of passing on one person in a row, now God's going to spread, and we're going to pass from Jacob to the 12 sons, which then become the 12 tribes of Israel. So I'm going to move pretty quickly through this story, partly because it's a story many of you have heard before, partly because it's a story that has a lot of chapters, but the, the point that we're going to zero in on today is what is the story doing in Genesis? What does the story teach us about the nature of the, of the, of the story that we're living in? Why is the story the last story of the book? That's a place of prominence, right? You notice the first story, you notice the last story. Why is the story the last story of the book? Okay, so setting the scene. Jacob has 12 sons. Jacob had two wives, two concubines. One of those wives was his favorite. And so because that wife was his favorite, then her two sons were also his favorites. Um, and you can see from the get-go that this is not starting well. This is not starting well. So because Jacob is playing favorites, he takes um, the, the two sons from his favorite wife were also the youngest. So you can just imagine this is not going anywhere good. Um, he takes Joseph, who is the older son of his favorite wife, and he gives him this beautiful coat that none of his other brothers are getting. And then Joseph, to make matters worse, doesn't seem to understand people very well. Did you ever have an annoying younger sibling? Ever? Did you ever see an annoying younger sibling? <laughs> Did you ever have that kid in your class who was good at everything and like could not stop pointing it out? Um, I remember being uh, in elementary school probably and all of us had just gotten through a really hard test and there was one kid who was like, you got a D on that? I got an A. Look at my A. I can come show you everything you did wrong. Would that be helpful? And the thing is, the thing is they're a kid, so they don't understand that you want to punch them in the face when they say that. Because what they're thinking is like, oh, I'm good at this. I should show everyone I'm good at this. And because they don't <laughs> they're a kid, they don't understand human psychology. So here we get Joseph, who has favored. He knows he's loved. He knows he's the favorite. Uh, he's a little kid, so he is no, and little kid is, is relative, right? So probably a young teenager. Um, <laughs> he has no idea that his brothers, who are actually grown-ups at this point, right? So his brothers have wives and children and responsibilities and all of the things that adults have. He has no idea that his brothers probably find him intolerable. And so Joseph decides in his wisdom to go tell all of his brothers, hey, guys, guess what? I had a dream, and in this dream, you guys all bowed down to me because I'm so awesome. That's not smart. Sounds like a good idea. So what we're seeing in Joseph, the picture we get of Joseph, very young. So obviously he actually is special because he's having dreams that are, are from God. The same way the kid who got the A in third grade is really smart, right? There's something special there, but he doesn't know what to do with it. He is not yet wise. <laughs> he's not yet even gracious, and he's certainly not mature. He's a kid who, who has been probably spoiled by his father who loves him too much. So we have a spoiled kid. We have a father who is indulging in the sin of favoritism, and then we have brothers. And the picture that we're getting overall starting the story is that this is the 
full effect of the Genesis 3 world. Now you remember, the Genesis 3 world started with a broken relationship between human and human, and when we think of that, we typically think wars, right? We typically think, my tribe's gonna attack your tribe. That's not where it attacks, that's not where it starts. It starts in the family, starts with brothers, Cain and Abel. The broken relationship between human and human hits us where it hurts the most. It does not hurt the human creature nearly so much to kill an anonymous enemy as to kill a brother. And the very first death in the Bible is Cain and Abel, brother killing brother, which tells us how bad this is, tells us how bad the Genesis 3 world actually is. And the story of Joseph sets us up in the natural progression of where things have gotten in that Genesis 3 world. Because what happens to Joseph is that when he is carrying a message to his brothers, they plot among themselves when they see him coming to kill him, throw his body in a ditch, and tell their father that a wild animal ate him. Now things have been funny up until this point, right? And things all of a sudden just got real. And this is what happens with sin, right? <laughs> you laugh it off until all of a sudden you realize that we're dealing with life and death because that's what sin is. That's what Genesis 3 means, is that all of this brokenness is not without consequence. It pushes us to the place of life and death. It pushes us to the place of hurting the people we love the most, even sometimes when we don't mean to do it. It pushes us to the place of standing in the place of brothers who are plotting to kill a brother. And so the very first overview of this final book of the Bible is we are seeing the effects of Genesis 3 play out. A, a, a father playing favorites, a young man who is steeped in immaturity, and brothers who are taking the place of Cain. So what happens here is that the brothers, as they are plotting the death of their younger brother, one of them steps up and says, let's not kill him. If we kill him, what good will that do us? Let's put him in, let's just throw him in this, this well. And his plan was to come back and save him later and restore him safely to his father. But he goes away. And so while he's away, they, they take him, they take that cloak off, they throw him in the well. And while he goes away, slave traders come by. And they say, if we kill him, what good will that do us? Let's just sell him as a slave, then we'll get money out of it, and our conscience will be assuaged that we did not actually kill him. It's a win-win here. And so they do that. They sell their brother into slavery. They take the money. They take that beautiful coat, tear it, cover it in animal blood, and when they present it to their father, they say, examine this to see if this looks like your son's. Did you notice that word? not our brothers, <laughs> examine this to see if this looks like your sons. This is what God is working with here, right? This is what Genesis 3 looks like. And if none of this sounds familiar to your life, I want you to pause and think about it a little bit more because this is the nature of the world in which we live. This is the nature of the world in which we live. A brokenness inherent to the human person whereby we hurt the people around us, we hurt ourselves, we hurt God, we hurt the created order simply because we are humans and we tend to mess things up. It doesn't mean we're evil, it doesn't mean we always are going to mess things up, 
So it means there is that tendency within us, and because of the very nature of the brokenness, we will tend to do it where it hurts most. You are far more likely to hurt your spouse than to hurt a coworker you don't care about. Why? Because you're an heir of Genesis 3. You are far more likely to yell at your kid than to yell at the grocery store clerk. Why? Because you're an heir of Genesis 3. There's something within us that causes us, when we do hurt, when we do live into this curse, to take it out on the people we actually love the most, sometimes even ourselves. Okay, everyone happy yet? Are we good? Glad you came to church this morning. So, what's happening now is that Joseph is going down to Egypt, which I'm going to spend next next week talking about all the symbolism is here because there's a whole lot of symbolism going on here. Joseph goes down to Egypt. Joseph is sold to a guy named Potiphar. And we have this phrase, the Lord was with Joseph. Notice that the Lord is with Joseph even when he is not in the promised land. Isn't that fascinating? This God goes with him, goes with him to Egypt. And so because the Lord was with Joseph, the Lord caused Joseph to start prospering. So even as a slave, everything he did prospered. And you notice that when the Lord was just with Joseph, it doesn't mean that there was an angel hovering over him, telling him what to do. That didn't happen. It doesn't mean that there was God literally came and spoke words into his head, telling him what to do. That didn't happen. What it meant was that God, in a real, though covert way, was with Jacob, and Jacob knew it even though he couldn't see it. But just because he couldn't see it didn't mean it wasn't real. The effects of God being with, have I been saying Jacob? I'm so sorry. You guys know what I'm talking about. Joseph, the other J name. Joseph, God being with Joseph, the effects of God being with Joseph were real even though they were unseen. God's hand in this chapter is covert and yet still real. So because God is with Joseph, he prospers. And he prospers. And then he is unfairly thrown into prison. And I, that's a whole other story you can read about. He's unfairly thrown into prison. But has God left him? No, even in prison, God is with him and he prospers. He takes care of him. And so there's this image that Joseph can go to the ends of the earth, can go into slavery, can even go to the depths of the prison, and there is no darkness that can keep him from the presence of God because God goes with him even there. And because God is with him, he is even in the depths of despair blessed. How can you be in the depths of despair and yet blessed? We're going to get into that in the New Testament, but what I'm pointing out is it is foreshadowed here in Genesis, in the first book of the Bible. He is in the depths of the prison, and yet he is blessed because he is in the presence of God. So even in the prison, he is given charge over all the other prisoners. He is given work to do. His work blessed is, uh, the work of his hands is blessed because the Lord is with him. And sure enough, one day, the Pharaoh calls him out of prison, and because of his gift of dreams, he is able to appear before the Pharaoh to interpret a dream. And at this point, we discover that Joseph has grown up a bit, which apparently, like, decades of slavery will do that to you. <laughs> so Joseph has grown up a little bit, and the Pharaoh asks him to interpret a dream, and he says this, I can do nothing, but if God decides to, God will. Does that sound like a little bit more humble than the Joseph that we saw at the beginning of the sermon? It's a little bit, he's grown up a little bit. He realizes that this is not him. He realizes he's relying on God. He realizes all this blessing is from God. And so he is, he is in a place where he has finally achieved a humility that he never had before. He's relying on God. He's going forward with God's direction. And with, partly because he's got nothing to lose, right? 
Like, how can things get any worse? And so with God's direction, then he interprets the dream of the Pharaoh. And then in the greatest reversal story in history, he then is given charge in Egypt because the dream he interprets is that there are going to be seven years of famine, seven years of, no, seven years of plenty, then seven years of famine. And so he says, Look, say for those seven years of plenty, and then during the seven years of famine, you will have plenty for all of your nation and also all the sur surrounding nations. So Pharaoh puts him in charge of that. And so then we get to see Joseph, the administrator, getting more powerful and more powerful and more powerful until he becomes the second most powerful person in Egypt. He has wealth beyond imagining. He has power beyond imagining. He can do anything he wants to do. And it's at that point in the story that his brothers come back. His brothers come back because they've hit the seven years of famine and after two years they've started to starve. And so they need food. And so they come to Egypt and at this point they think their brother's dead. That has been long since gone. And they come back to buy food and his brother, Joseph, sees them in line and recognizes them. And so he can't help himself, he starts to mess with them. <laughs> And he brings them in, and he questions them about their house and their family, and they obviously don't recognize him, partly because they think he's dead, and partly because he looks like an Egyptian official. And then he, he, he puts them through a ringer. I'm not going to go into all of it. But what it eventually comes out is he tells them, if you want food, go get your brother, go get your father, bring them back to me. Or it's, it's first your brother, go get your brother, bring him back to me. And of course, that was his other... Jo Jacob's other favorite son, Jacob did not want to part with his brother, so they waited, the brothers went back and they waited until they were about to starve to death again, and then finally they said, look, either we're all going to die or you let us take this brother, and so they went back with the youngest brother and all of his brothers, and they were there in front of Joseph, and Joseph pushes everyone out of the room, and he's alone with the brothers for the first time since they sold him into slavery. Now I'm just going to pause here, because what do you think happens next? And some of you know what happens next, so just push that out of your head. I want you to pause here, and I want you to think about this as a story. If we were in an action story, what would happen next? He would kill all of them, slowly, right? He would, like, devise ways to kill them. Forgiveness is not a virtue in the ancient world. If we were in an action movie, that's what this would be. If we were in a drama, especially like a tragedy, how would this end? What would happen right now? If we were in a tragedy, something would happen where he would reveal himself to them, but he would demand their penance, and they would be angry at each other forever, and then they would all tragically die. If we were in a tragedy, that's what would happen. Think about it. What is the genre of the story in which we are living? What's the genre of Genesis? The gardener artist God is going to make good things out of chaos. And so what happens is none of that. What happens is Joseph pushes everyone out of the room. It's just he and his brothers for the first time. And he weeps, and he hugs them, and he forgives them. That doesn't stun you because you've grown up in a society that considers forgiveness a virtue. But I want you to imagine if you hadn't, because other societies didn't, right? 
This was supposed to shock. This was supposed to be not the right way the story ended because, because what kind of God considers forgiveness a virtue? It's the God who likes to make beautiful things out of chaos. It's the God who likes to make good things out of terrible things. It's the God who is so good at what he does that he can take a Genesis 3 world and he can end it this way. And so what he does is God starts with that family. And because God is there and his hand is there, and even though you don't see it, he is working by the end of the story, he has set up an ending to the story that functionally undoes Genesis 3. So whereas Genesis 3 was cursed between human and human, especially brother and brother, at the end of the story we have forgiveness and we have reconciliation. Whereas Genesis 3 was cursed between the human and the ground so that the ground would no longer produce food, at the end of the story we have feasting not because the ground is producing food, but because the humans have listened to God and prepared and been smart and wise, and because of that, they have enough food for all, and they end with a great feast whereby there is enough for every family there. Whereas Genesis 3 started with this break in the relationship between God and man, where it ended was God with his people, building the family that would carry his covenant that would eventually bless the world. And that is how Genesis 3 ends. That is how Genesis ends. The story of Genesis ends. It is as though God is looking at us and God is saying, do not be afraid of the evil people in this world because I know what I'm doing and I'm good at it. Do not be afraid of the curse, whether it is outside you or whether it is within you, because I know what I'm doing and I'm good at it. Genesis 50, the final chapter. His brothers didn't actually believe him the first time he forgave them. And so after their father died, they come back. And they pull this line. It's literally, they say, also, dad told you to really forgive us. <laughs> and he says this. Do not be afraid. Am I in the place of God? Even though you intended to do harm to me, God intended it for good in order to preserve a numerous people as he is doing today. Think about that. Even though you intended harm, God intended good. Friends, the power of that message is that you don't need to be afraid of the damage that you can do as long as you are turning it over to God because God is good at what he does. You don't need to be afraid of the evil that you see in the world as long as you are turning it over to God because God is good at what he does. What is intended for evil can, by the grace of God, become good. And for Christians, this takes on a whole new meaning. Because for Christians, there was another point in the story when people intended something for evil. And in a glorious resurrection, God proved that it was actually good. And there were people who thought that they had killed God and in a glorious resurrection, God proved that he could actually even overcome death. And a, part, a point of the story at which people thought the grave had won, death had won, sin had won, Genesis 3 had won, and God said, no, I'm good at what I do. I'm the maker of good things. I'm the maker of beautiful things. You can trust 
me and you do not need to be afraid of the darkness because in the beginning I said let there be light and the light shines in the darkness and the darkness does not overcome it friends this morning as we close this book together please hear these words because this is the same those of us living in a Genesis 3 world worship the same God who has overcome the curse. We do not need to be afraid of the power of the curse because God knows what he is doing. Doesn't mean we underestimate it, but we do not live our lives in fear of it. We live our lives worshiping the God who can make good things out of dust. Would you join with me in a word of prayer? Almighty Heavenly Father, you have given us all good things. You have poured yourself out for us. You have created good where there was no good. And we, we confess that there are so many times when we have not trusted you for who you are and not given ourselves to you. And so, Heavenly Father, come. Break open our hearts. Forgive us when we have not been yours. Forgive us when we have not trusted you. Forgive us when we have not believed that you could do what you say you can do. Forgive us when we have been the brothers instead of Joseph. Forgive us when we have not offered or received the forgiveness you have given us. Forgive us when we have not played our part in your great story. Come, draw us closer to you. Forgive us, we pray, and free us for joyful obedience through Jesus Christ our Lord. As we pray, as we say together the prayer our Lord taught, our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen.